We have a lot to do, but not much time to do it in. So, but we have to do it. Um, I will send a um, post on Latte about where we're meeting Thursday for those of you who can come. Um, all right, so where we were um, is around line 265, um, 269 actually. Um, we were hearing about Alexander and Aristotle, the twain, the teacher and his pupil, um, both of whom are chained to the car, both teacher and pupil. Um, Alexander being the ancient version of Napoleon, or Napoleon the um, modern version of Alexander, but even the those who led others in triumph, those who were the most powerful of all figures, imposed yokes on others which soon they stooped to bear. Remember that's what Shelley says about what happened in Rome. When freedom left those who upon the free imposed a yoke which soon they stooped to bear. You could say that in some sense that's the whole way that, the, that life works. That um, what it means um, to be alive is to um, attempt to um, have some kind of autonomy, which always in some sense means that you overdo it, that your autonomy becomes your own desire for empire, even thought's empire over thought, if you're a philosopher. That is in seeking, it's a kind of proto-Darwinian idea, that in seeking um, your own um, freedom and autonomy, you um, inevitably start pressing against others' freedom and autonomy. And so the very gesture towards freedom um, becomes a gesture towards enslaving others. And eventually, um, this happens to everyone, that in seeking autonomy, um, you victimize others. When others seek autonomy, they victimize you. Um, the idea is um, something like what you find in Malthus, um, who Shelley loathed, as you'll recall. He would rather be damned, he said, with Lord Bacon than saved with Malthus. Um, but Malthus is the origin of um, the ideas in Darwinian evolution. That is, um, the world is a world of scarcity, and therefore um, it's a world in which there's cutthroat competition. Shelley um, thought this was a terrible view of the world, and he also hoped that it was a false view of the world, that people could figure out a way not to live this way. Um, but it's certainly a view that's getting round. Um, so here are the conqueror, Alexander, and the intellectual conqueror, Aristotle. Um, and they too are chained to the cars, to the car. That is, car there means chariot. Even though Aristotle is throned <coughs> in new thoughts of men, um, and um, the idea of Aristotle is in his throne. Whenever you see a word like throned in Shelley, um, it's, a, it's a telling metaphor because he was against thrones. He was against kings. He was against empire. He was against um, some people having more power than others. So it's not just a metaphor about how great Aristotle, it, Aristotle is, although it is that. 
but it's also a metaphor about how even intellectual greatness, unless you're Socrates or Jesus, even intellectual greatness is oppressive to those whom you um, outthink and whom you force to think your own thoughts. So Aristotle would still be there, still had kept the jealous keys of truth's eternal doors. If Bacon's spirit, Mary Shelley turned that into Bacon's eagle spirit, had not leapt like lightning out of darkness. So this is Sir Francis Bacon, um, who is generally regarded as the originator of the modern scientific method. Um, Bacon didn't think Aristotle was right about everything, which you were supposed to think. Um, but rather, he started doing experiments. Um, his famous line is that what a scientist does is, as it were, to set nature upon the rack until she yields her secrets. That is, that um, what you do in experimental science is you push the natural world until it confesses things that might not be obvious if you don't push it. It's, again, a strange metaphor. A lot of people have hated Bacon for using this metaphor. I think it's just a metaphor, um, but it's one you should know. It's putting nature upon the rack until she yields her secrets. Um, so Bacon's eagle spirit leapt like lightning out of darkness. He compelled the proteus shape of nature as it slept to wake and to unbar the caves that held the treasure of the secrets of its reign. So nature was compelled to give up the secrets of its reign. Who does that remind you of? Compelling someone to give up the secrets of the reign. Yeah. Prometheus Unbound. Yeah. So, so Shelley is taking Bacon, um, even as the prince of truth and the prince of inquiry, as someone who nevertheless is um, engaged in this um, conflict, this compulsion, this forcing of others. Um, and then not only do we see Bacon and Aristotle and Alexander, but we see the great bards of old. That is, the great poets are there as well. See the great bards of old. The footnote will tell you, I think your footnote will tell you, that Shelley had originally written, see Homer and his brethren. So we know who the great bards of old are. See the great bards of old, Rousseau goes on, who inly quelled the passions which they sung. So they were able not to feel the passions that they talked about. Um, they managed to transcend them. They quelled the passions which they sung. Is that a good thing? No, because it's another kind of conquest. It's control over your emotions, which means that you are conquering your emotions and you're not feeling what you're singing about. So even the great poets of old who were able to sing these things best did it through a kind of forcing of their own souls. You can tell that by their strain. So see the great bards of old who inly quelled the passions which they sung as by their strain may well be known. Their living melody tempers its own contagion to the vein of those who are infected with it. Everyone loves them because they are able to sing about what they sing about in ways that apply to everyone, that, that, um, in ways that aren't strictly personal but universal. 
their living melody tempers its own contagion to the vein of those who are infected with it. But I, says Rousseau, I have suffered what I wrote, or viler pain. I didn't attempt to conquer my own thoughts. I suffered what I wrote, or viler pain. And so my words were seeds of misery, not of pleasure. But some of my words were seeds of misery, even as the deeds of others. So if you quell your passion, you're doing something wrong, and you get chained to the car of life. If you don't quell your passion, but describe and express your own suffering, you're doing something wrong because you make others miserable um, with this depiction of suffering. And so my words were seeds of misery, even as the deeds of others. Not as theirs, I said. So now um, Shelley is pointing out those who were worse than poets. Not as theirs, I said. He pointed to a company in which I recognized, amid the heirs of Caesar's crime from him to Constantine, the anarchs old, whose force and murderous snares had founded many a scepter-bearing line and spread the plague of blood and gold abroad. So they were worse. Um, the heirs of Caesar's crime, that is, the end of the Republic, the beginning of imperial Rome. All the emperors from Caesar to Constantine, who then established Christianity as the official religion. The anarchs old, that is, not anarchists, but anarchical rulers. The anarchs old, whose force and murderous snares, the might-makes-right type, who founded many a line of kings, many a scepter-bearing line. And what did they do? They spread the plague of blood and gold abroad. And then popes also, and Gregory and John, any Gregory, any John, and men divine who rose like shadows between man and God. So all these popes, rather than transmitting divinity and God rose like shadows between man and God till that eclipse still hanging under heaven was worshipped by the world or which they strode for the true sun it quenched there's that word quenched again so the shadows of the church quenched the true sun even as the light of the chariot of life is quenching the true sun their power was given but to destroy, replied the leader, that is, replied Rousseau. Um, that's a Dantesque word, leader, um, or guide. It's um, a direct uh, allusion to what Shelley is always, uh, excuse me, what Dante is always calling Virgil. Um, Their power was given but to destroy, replied the leader. I am one of those who have created, even if it be but a world of agony. So at least... I wasn't like a political tyrant who only destroyed. I created, it might be a world of agony, the world of tragedy, of poetry, of the unhappiness that poetry expresses, but at least it's creative. Whence comest thou, and whither goest thou? How did thy course begin, I said, and why? So there's the third iteration of that question. None seem to know whence he came or whither he went or why he made one of the multitude. So where do you come from? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why? 
That's the question. Whence comest thou? And whither goest thou? How did thy course begin, I said? And why? Mine eyes are sick of this perpetual flow of people and my heart of one sad thought. So remember, that's I whom thoughts which must remain untold. He's not telling us why he's thinking or having this vision. But tell me, my heart, my eyes are sick of this perpetual flow of people, my heart of one sad thought. Speak! And now Rousseau answers. Whence I came, partly I seem to know. And how and by what paths I have been brought to this dread pass, methinks even thou mayest guess. So where I come from, I think I know. How I got here, you can guess. Because my story is your story, is every poet's story. Why this should be, my mind can compass not. Why are we thrown into the world into which we're thrown? Whither the conqueror hurries me still less. Who's the conqueror? Whose triumph of this? Whose triumph is this? Life. Yeah, so life is the conqueror. Um, where she is hurrying me still less. Can I, can I figure that out? But follow thou. And from spectator turn actor or victim in this wretchedness. But actors are victims. First you act, then you are the victim of other actors. So stop watching, says Rousseau, if you want to know. From spectator turn actor or victim in this wretchedness. And what thou wouldst be taught, I then may learn from thee. You'll be able to know everything that I know. But then he tells his story. Now listen. In the April prime, when all the forest tops began to burn with kindling green, touched by the azure climb of the young year, I found myself asleep under a mountain, which from unknown time had yawned into a cavern high and deep. So we're thinking, of course, Kublai Khan, right? <laughs> everything, actually, everything is Kublai Khan. There is a way in which everything after Kublai Khan is Kublai Khan. Okay. There is. Right, yeah. OK, so here, remember that, that Rousseau here is Wordsworth, or even a combination of Wordsworth and Coleridge. More Wordsworth than Coleridge, just the way lyrical ballads is more Wordsworth than Coleridge. But they are combined. They do combine it as a kind of um, duo who produce anonymous poems, have produced anonymous poems, either by one or by the other. You know, like, like um, um, Hamilton and Madison, um, like um, Addison and Steele, people who are writing the, um, the, the works anonymously that, that represent a certain, um, a certain movement. So I found myself asleep, says Rousseau, under a mountainside, um, just as Shelley is in the same situation now. We're getting as it were, what's called a self-similar story. It's like the Morton Salt box, which, which has a picture of someone holding a, a Morton Salt box on it with a picture of her holding the Morton Salt box on it, etc. Um, so here, Shelley is telling us his story. Now Rousseau is telling Shelley his story, and it's very similar. I found myself asleep under a mountain which from unknown time had yawned into a cavern high and deep and from it came a gentle rivulet whose water, like clear air in its calm sweep, bent the soft grass 
and kept forever wet the stems of the sweet flowers and filled the grove with sounds which all who hear must needs forget all pleasure and all pain, all hate and love which they had known before that hour of rest. So he wakes up to a sound of forgetfulness, something he doesn't know where or how he got there, but the sound, the beautiful sound there, makes fills the grove with sound, which all who hear must needs forget, all pleasure and all pain, all hate and love which they had known before that hour of rest. A sleeping mother then would dream not of the only child who died upon her breast at eventide. So, so sweet is the oblivious spell that if a mother had lost her child the night before, she would have forgotten it. A sleeping mother would then, then would dream not of the only child who died upon her breast at eventide. A king would mourn no more the crown of which his brow was dispossessed when the sun lingered o'er the ocean floor to gild his rival's new prosperity. So he, if he'd lost his crown the day before, as the sun was setting, he would forget that. Thou, even you, thou wouldst forget thus vainly to deplore ills, which if ills can find no cure from thee. So again, he's wondering why God made irreconcilable good and the means of good. He can't cure the ills of the world. Ills, the thought of which no other sleep will quell, nor other music blot from memory. So hang on to that word, blot. Nor other music blot from memory. So sweet and deep is the oblivious spell, the the spell that produces oblivion. Whether my life had been before that sleep, the heaven which I imagine, or a hell like this harsh world in which I wake to weep, I know not. Okay, so here you should be thinking of the intimations ode. Our birth is what, according to Wordsworth? All right! Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its... The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its... Okay, let's try this again. Imagine that this is, wait, wait, don't tell me. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its... Yay! Hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Remember um, the youth who dealt that that, um, our soul rises? We talked about this, and I asked you to notice this at the beginning of the term that that soul is the planet Venus, rising as the morning star with us, but therefore you can't see it at night. If Venus is the morning star, it's not the evening star. So what happens is Venus rises a little bit before sunrise. Venus, the star of love, rises a little bit before sunrise, and then the sun comes up and Venus slowly fades away. So Wordsworth says, at length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. 
So what happens is our soul rises into this world, and then the sun comes, and the star, the morning star, Venus, disappears as the brighter light of the sun quenches it. That's Wordsworth. That's what he says happens to us in this life, that we come from elsewhere, from heaven, but then our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. And what we see, we still see what Wordsworth calls um, the, how does it go? Um, the youth who daily from the east must travel still is, the youth who daily further from the east must travel, can anyone do this? The youth who daily further from the east must travel still is nature's priest. And by the vision splendid, is on his way attended. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. And remember, we looked at the word common at the very beginning of the semester. These common woes are mine, says Shelley in Two Wordsworth, picking up the idea of common from the Intimations Ode, which Wordsworth himself picked up from Hamlet. Um, thou knowest that death is common. I, madam, tis common, Hamlet answers. Why seems it so particular to thee, his mother then asks. So common means everyday, uninteresting, the loss of celestial light. And celestial light turns out to be not the light of the sun, which is the light of common day, but the light of Venus in this metaphor, the soul that rises with us, our life star, which fades away into the light of common day. So Wordsworth is thinking this, and Shelley is remembering this as Rousseau speaks. Um, whether my life had been before that sleep and that forgetting, the heaven which I imagine, or a hell like this harsh world in which I wake to weep, I know not. I arose, and for a space, the scene of woods and water seemed to keep, though it was now broad day, a gentle trace of light diviner than the common sun sheds on the common earth. <clears throat> but all the place was filled with many sounds, woven into one oblivious melody, confusing sense amid the gliding waves and shadows done. And as I looked, the bright omnipresence of morning through the orient cavern flowed. And the sun's image, radiantly intense, burned on the waters of the well that glowed like gold and threaded all the forest maze with winding paths of emerald fire. Amazing sentence. Just look at how he's hitting all his marks in the Turts arena. But the sentence is just going on and on. But notice then that the light is fading in common day. Um, still, there's a gentle trace of light diviner than the common sun sheds on the common earth. But now the sun is burning on the waters of the well. Um, those of you who know Plato's allegory of the cave, is this familiar to people? Plato says if someone ever left the cave and went out into the real light of day, they might see the sun reflected in a well or pool of water and be dazzled by that reflection and think there was nothing in the, in the universe that could be as bright as that reflection without looking at the sun itself. 
But that phrase, burned on the waters, anyone recognize it as a Shakespearean allusion? Or a T.S. Eliot allusion? Because T.S. Eliot is actually quoting Shakespeare. The barge she sat in like a burnished... All right, yes. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the waters. That's what Ina Barbas, how Ina Barbas describes Cleopatra. Um, Eliot picks it up as the chair she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the waters. Um, so yes, that's what Cleopatra was like. Um, and Shelley is getting that into this poem as well. So the sun's image, because Cleopatra and ending Cleopatra are going to be a major source of the language of the rest of this poem. And the sun's image, radiantly intense, burned on the waters of the well that glowed like gold and threaded all the forest maze with winding <clears throat> paths of emerald fire. There stood amid the sun as he amid the blaze of his own glory. There's that self-describing image again. The sun stands amid the blaze of his own glory. Remember that witch is, um, is sleeping within her own beauty. Some are walking within their own shadows. That's a typical Shellian construction. So there stood amid the sun as he amid the blaze of his own glory on the vibrating floor of the fountain paved with flashing rays a shape. There's that word again, a shape, like the shape in the chariot, a shape in the shape on the lap of the mother um, who is going to have to think of her son with 60 or more winters on his head in Yates's Among School Children that we talked about there. There was a shape, all light, which with one hand did fling dew on the earth, as if she were the dawn, whose invisible rain forever seemed to sing a silver music on the mossy lawn, and still before her on the dusky grass, Iris, her many-colored scarf, had drawn. So she, the shape all light, um, is burning on the fountain and seems to be throwing dew onto the grass, causing a rainbow effect, because Iris is the messenger of Hera and the goddess of the rainbow. Um, but Iris is also a character in Antony and Cleopatra. So Iris um, is producing a rainbow um, as a kind of veil that the shape all light um, is... Um, is the source of. That rainbow is going to turn into a triumphal arch, um, like the Arc de Triomphe. The, the Arc de Triomphe is a triumphal arch, as they had in Rome. And that's where triumphs were led, through that arch, to humiliate the losers before they were executed. So Iris on the dusky grass, Iris her many-colored scarf had drawn in her right hand she bore a crystal glass mantling with bright nepenthe. So here's a glass with nepenthe. If you know Comus, which of course you do, um, nepenthe is what Comus tries to give to those he would seduce. It comes originally from the Odyssey. It's what Circe <coughs> gives to those that she turns into animals. So it's a seductive drink that will destroy you if you drink it. So in her right hand, she bore a crystal glass mantling with bright nepenthe. The fierce splendor fell from her as she moved under the mass of the deep 
cavern. So now the shape of light enters into the cavern. And with palms, that is the soles of her feet, with palms so tender, their tread broke not the mirror of its billow, glided along the river. So, so she's going um, through caverns measureless to man, um, gliding on a river. She seems to be walking on the surface of the water, not breaking that surface, but she's a shape all light. So her tread, the, the tread of her feet broke not the mirror of its billow, but glided along the river. And she did bend her head under the dark boughs, till like a willow her fair hair swept the bosom of the stream that whispered with delight to be their pillow. So this beautiful image of the shape all light, walking along the water, holding a glass of bright nepenthe, as one enamored is upborne in dream or lily-paven lakes mid silver mist to wondrous music. So, and here you can think of what's the end of Two Spirits in Allegory, and a shape like his early love doth pass, upborne by her wild and glittering hair, and when he awakes on the fragrant grass, he finds night day. So the same image here. As one enamored is upborne in dream or lily-paven lakes mid silver mist to wondrous music, so this shape might seem partly to tread the waves with feet which kissed the dancing foam, partly to glide along the airs that roughened the moist amethyst or the slant morning beams that fell among the trees or the soft shadows of the trees and her feet ever to the ceaseless song. So it's just been gorgeous, this description of the shape of light. But like the sun at the beginning, Look what she does. And her feet ever to the ceaseless song of leaves and winds and waves and birds and bees and falling drops moved in a measure new, yet sweet, as on the summer evening breeze up from the lake a shape of golden dew between two rocks athwart the rising moon dances in the wind where eagle never flew. And still her feet, no less than the sweet tune to which they moved, seemed as they moved to blot so there's that word blot again, to blot the thoughts of him who gazed on them. So he's looking at her and her feet as they dance seem to be blotting out his thoughts. And soon all that was seemed as if it had been not, as if the gazer's mind was strewn beneath her feet like embers. And she thought by thought trampled its fires into the dust of death. So it turns out that she is dangerous and destructive and has trampled Rousseau's thoughts, the embers of his thoughts. Remember the Ode to the West Wind. Um, the embers of Shelley's thoughts will be scattered like, like sparks among mankind here. The gazer's mind was strewn beneath her feet like embers, and she thought by thought trampled its fires into the dust of death as day upon the threshold of the east treads out the lamps of night. So day seems to step on all the embers that are the stars, which is what happened again at the very beginning of the poem. Um, the sun rises and lays the stars asleep, the stars that had gemmed 
the cone of night. Until, so the lamps of night are treaded out, until the breath of darkness reillumines even the least of heaven's living eyes. So when it becomes dark again, this is a hopeful moment. The breath of darkness. Think how amazing this metaphor is. It's the breath of darkness. Why? Because darkness is breathing on the embers the way you would at a fire that's almost out and trying to reillumine them that way. So just as day does that to the stars, that's what you did to my thoughts, until the breath of darkness reillumines even the least of heaven's living eyes. Like day she came, making the night a dream. And ere she ceased to move, as one between desire and shame suspended, I said, if as it doth seem thou comest from the realm without a name into this valley of perpetual dream, show, and here we go again, whence I came and where I am and why, pass not away upon the passing stream. So he wants to know the same thing that Shelley has wanted to know. And as Shelley has asked Rousseau that question, Rousseau asks the shape all light that question. And the shape all light answers, arise and quench thy thirst, was her reply. Remember that Rousseau has said to Shelley, if, I'll tell my story, but if thirst for knowledge does not abate, follow it even until evening. So the idea is Shelley wants to know, and that's described as thirst. Now the shape all light is, call it, is saying that what Rousseau is experiencing in wanting to know this is thirst. So just notice the spiraling or self-similar structure of this. Rousseau is to the shape all light as Shelley is to Rousseau. In the Dante background to this poem, and you know, you could spend a really good literary life reading what you need to read for the background of The Triumph of Life. You would get an extraordinarily good literary education if you did that. So you could see these as the sparks and embers and seeds of your future reading. In Dante, Dante's two guides are Virgil and then Beatrice. And Beatrice has instructed Virgil to guide Dante through hell and purgatory. Um, so there, so Shelley's thinking of that also, that the shape all light, in some sense, is a divine shape, except she's not. She seems to be evil. But the shape guiding Shelley's guide. So. Arise and quench thy thirst, was her reply. And as a shut lily, stricken by the wand of dewy morning's vital alchemy, I rose, and bending at her sweet command, touched with faint lips the cup she raised. So he does drink the nepenthe that she offers him. Remember, she has a glass mantling with bright nepenthe. She does drink it, and suddenly... My brain became as sand. So he has a sip, and now his brain turns into sand, the sand of a beach. And suddenly, my brain became as sand, where the first wave had more than half erased the track of deer on desert 
Labrador, whilst the fierce wolf from which they fled amazed leaves his stamp visibly upon the shore until the second bursts. So his brain was like a beach where a wave comes and um, erases deer that are running away from a wolf on a beach in Labrador in Canada. And it doesn't quite, but almost erases, half erases the tracks of the deer. But you can still see before the second wave comes the track of the wolf chasing the deer. And then another wave comes and will erase that also, just as on my sight burst a new vision never seen before. So now, just as Shelley has seen the sunrise and then the cold glare of the chariot come and quench the sun as he the stars, so now on my sight burst a new vision never seen before. And then here is the Wordsworthian idea of the um, light, the soul that rises with us, our life star fading into the light of common day. And the fair shape waned in the coming light as veil by veil the silent splendor drops from Lucifer amid the chrysolite of sunrise ere it strikes the mountain tops. So who or what is Lucifer there? What's astronomically being referred to? No, no, Lucifer is not the sun. Yeah. Yeah, Lucifer is the morning star, sometimes called the sun of the morning. Sometimes we call it Venus, in which case it's the goddess of love. Sometimes it's Lucifer, the sun of the morning. Do people know the um, line from Isaiah? Do you know it? Okay, so the idea of uh, the the idea of war in heaven and Satan being defeated by God and falling into hell, the whole idea behind Paradise Lost and a whole lot of Christian theology, originates in Isaiah, where Isaiah addresses the morning star and says, uh, "How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Um, thou encampest." encampedest in the north, um, but now thou art fallen. So what Isaiah is doing is he has um, a metaphor or an analogy for what happens to pride. Lucifer literally means the light bearer, the one that bears light. Lucy, light, and fur to carry, as in transfer or confer. To transfer is to carry across. To confer is to carry with someone else or to carry on a conversation with someone else. So Lucifer is the light carrier. And what Isaiah is saying is, look what pride will do to you. Look at the morning star. It thinks it's so cool. But then the sun rises and it disappears. And that's like what God is to us. So this was taken by Christian mythology that Lucifer was a rebel angel. Isaiah is just using an astronomical image, but this was mystified, turned into mysticism, turned into myth, 
by Christian mythology. So here we have the description of Lucifer now simply as the morning star. Um, dropping its splendor, veil by veil, there's that word that Shelley loves, veil by veil, the silent splendor drops from Lucifer amid the chrysolite of sunrise, ere it strike the mountaintop. So you can see in the sky, you can see Venus in the chrysolite of the sun before you can see the sun itself. Because Venus is reflecting the sun, that's why we see Venus even before sunrise, because Venus is reflecting the sun that's just below the horizon. So there it is. Remember the moon on the sunlit limits of the night? This is another, in, that, this is another sunlit limits of the night image. And what we get now is spectacularly beautiful, and the fair shape waned in the coming light as veiled by veil the silent splendor drops from Lucifer amid the chrysolite of sunrise, ere it strikes the mount, ere it strike the mountaintops, and as the presence of that fairest planet, although unseen, is felt by one who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it in that star's smile whose light is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes <coughs> fan it or the soft note in which his dear lament the Brescian shepherd breathes or the caress that turned his weary slumber to content. So knew I in that light severe excess the presence of that shape. So he, remember, Shelley is using here the word splendor, where, which is the noun for which splendid is the adjective. The youth who daily further from the east must travel still as nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it, die away, and fade into the light of common day. Here Rousseau is saying the shape of light waned the way Lucifer wanes. But the presence of that fairest planet, that is Venus, although is seen, unseen, is felt by one who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it, in that star's smile whose light is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes fan it. Just gorgeous. This is not synesthetic as in Keats, but it does use <coughs> one sense to describe another. The light of Venus is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes fan it. Um, just as before, the breath of night will illuminate even the least of heaven's living eyes. Or it is like the soft notes in which his dear lament the Brescian shepherd breathes, soft notes of the shepherd's song in Brescia. Or the caress, its light is like the caress that turned his weary slumber to content. It's like all the senses so knew I in that light severe excess the presence of that shape. Now the important thing to know is what the um, one who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it in that star's smile, that hope is false, as Shelley well knew. If you see Venus in the morning, 
you will not see it at night. As the morning star, it, Venus is astronomically either the morning star or the evening star. It is never both. It's either going to be to our east, in which case it's the morning star, or to our west, in which case it's the evening star. But it will never be both. So this hope is a false hope that Rousseau is describing here. Anyhow, I knew in that light's severe excess the presence of that shape, which on the stream moved as I moved along the wilderness. The shape moves more dimly than a day-appearing dream, the ghost of a forgotten form of sleep. I think that's an amazing line. A light from heaven whose half-extinguished beam through the sick day in which we wake to weep glimmers forever sought, forever lost. And again, I want to point out what I think are just stunningly beautiful rhymes here. As the presence of that fairest planet, although unseen it's felt by one who hopes that his day's path may end as he began it, in that star smile whose light is like the scent of a jonquil when evening breezes fan it. I think those are amazing rhymes. Planet, began it, fan it. So there, the, the star, the shape of light is still glimmering, forever sought, forever lost. So did that shape, its obscure tenor keep beside my path as silent as a ghost. But the new vision, so what's that the vision of? The new vision in its cold, bright car. <coughs> what has drowned out the shape all light? A new vision and its cold, bright car, so a vision of you're about to say it, say it. Yeah, yeah, life has now shown up in her chariot to Rousseau. So what Shelley has described, how suddenly the chariot of life showed up, Rousseau is describing how that happened to him. Before Shelley's birth, before thy birth, I lived, loved, hated, suffered, did, and died. That is, I had my life. And what happened? to me is what happens to everyone, which is the chariot of life suddenly showed up, drowning everything out. Happens when you graduate college these days. Um, sorry. Or grad school. Um, drowning everything else out. But the new vision and its cold, bright car with savage music, not the oblivious music he'd heard before, but with savage music, stunning music, crossed the forest, and as if from some dread war triumphantly returning, the loud million fiercely extolled the fortune of her star. So now, just as Shelley had seen the similitude of a, of a, of a triumph, so Rousseau saw the same thing. The million dancing and extolling the triumph of the chariot, triumphantly returning as if from some dread war triumphantly returning, the loud million fiercely extol the fortune of her star, a moving arch of victory, 
the vermilion and green and azure plumes of iris had built high over her wind-winged pavilion. So now Iris, who'd been doing the little rainbow for the shape all light, is now doing the rainbow as triumphal arch for the chariot of life. And underneath ethereal glory clad the wilderness, and far before her flew the tempest of the splendor, which forbade shadow to fall from leaf or stone. So it's so bright there's no shadow anywhere because the radiance is coming from all directions. The crew seemed in that light like atomies that dance within a sunbeam. That has seemed like dust in a sunbeam. Some upon the new embroidery of flowers that did enhance the grassy vesture of the desert played forgetful of the chariot's swift advance. So there are all these people in summer playing among the flowers and they forget that the chariot is advancing on them. Others stood gazing till within the shade of the great mountain its its light left them dim. Others outspeeded it. And others made circles round it like the clouds that swim round the high moon in a bright sea of air and more did follow with exalting him, the chariot, and the captives fettered there, but all like bubbles on an eddying flood fell into the same track at last and were borne onward. So just what Shelley described at the beginning, everyone dancing around the chariot until they're run over by it, um, so that the youth now turn into old men and women, foully disarrayed, Frost performing in these with fire and those. Now Rousseau is describing the same thing. Everyone turned into bubbles <coughs> on an eddying flood. And they fell into the same track at last and were born onward. And then Rousseau says, I was different for all the good it did me um, because I too among the multitude was swept. I among the multitude was swept. Me Sweetest flowers delayed not long. Me, not the shadow nor the solitude. Me, not the falling stream's Lethean song. Me, not the phantom of that early form which moved upon its motion. But among the thickest billows of the living storm I plunged and bared my bosom to the climb of that cold light whose airs too soon deformed. So, um, again, the phantom of that early form, that's the shape all light, now turned into a mere phantom in this bright light. And he plunges right into it and bared my bosom to the climb of that cold light whose airs too soon deform. And then the last great image in the poem. Before the chariot had begun to climb the opposing steep of that mysterious dell, that is the valley where he found himself, where he woke up. Before the chariot had begun to climb the opposing steep of that mysterious dell, behold a wonder worthy of the rhyme of him whom from the lowest depths of hell through every paradise and through all glory love led serene. So who is that? Dante, 
Yes. So behold a wonder worthy of his rhyme. I saw something worthy of Dante, says Rousseau. Before the chariot had begun to climb the opposing steep of that mysterious dell, behold a wonder worthy of the rhyme of him whom from the lowest depths of hell, through every paradise and through all glory, love led serene. So that's great. And who returned to tell in words of hate and awe the wondrous story, how all things are transfigured except love. So there's Dante, love, led by love into paradise. And he comes back to earth and tells the story in words of hate and awe, even Dante. The wondrous story, how all things are transfigured except love. For death, as is a sea which wrath makes hoary, the world cannot hear, the world can hear not the sweet notes that move the sphere whose light is melody to lovers. So we don't hear the music of the sphere of Venus. And here's why Dante also couldn't hear it apparently and returned with words of hate and awe. So even love doesn't help us. But behold, a wonder worthy of his rhyme. Now remember I said the question in the triumph of life is, if Shelley had finished it, would the poem have eventually ended happily the way arguably Prometheus Unbound does, the way arguably Admaeus does? Um, now one thing for you to know is that almost at the end of Dante's Paradiso, there's an amazing scene where Dante drinks from a river, Dante the wayfarer or pilgrim. Um, again, to remind you, um, Paradiso describes how a first-person narrator was led through hell and purgatory and heaven. Um, and about halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through purgatory, we learn the name of that narrator, and it's Dante. And he apologizes. He says, you know, it's, people don't usually tell their names, but in this case I have to report exactly what happened to me. And um, she addressed me as Dante, so I have, to, I have to quote her correctly. So we find out it's Dante himself who's going through these places. And as he gets to the very top of heaven, as he approaches where God is in heaven, he comes to a stream which is too bright to look on, a stream of light too bright for him to look on. And Beatrice, his guide, says, drink from that stream, arise and quench thy thirst. And he drinks from it, and that enables him, gives him the power to look at the extraordinary brightness of the light there. And then he sees all the angels and he says it was as though masks fell from their faces. Um, masks of light fell from their faces, and I could see their human faces. And that was the moment where I saw all the blessed as they were. Um, I drank from the stream, and now masks fell from their faces, and I could see them as they really were. And that was just great that I had that vision. So that vision of the masks falling we saw that at the very beginning of the triumph of life. Um, the sun sprang forth rejoicing in his splendor and... And the mask of darkness fell from him. 
and the mask of darkness fell from the awakened earth. So now, behold a wonder worthy of his rhyme. The grove grew dense. This is line 481. The grove grew dense with shadows to its inmost covers. The earth was gray with phantoms, and the air was peopled with dim forms. As when there hovers a flock of vampire bats before the glare of the tropic sun, bringing ear evening strange night upon some Indian isle. So suddenly shadows flying everywhere, <coughs> like bats, like vampire bats, blotting out the sun. Thus were phantoms diffused around, and some did fling shadows of shadows, yet unlike themselves. Behind them, some like eaglets on the wing were lost in the white blaze. Others, like elves, danced in a thousand unimagined shapes upon the sunny streams and grassy shelves, and others sat chattering like restless apes on vulgar paws and voluble like fire. Some made a cradle of the ermined capes of kingly mantles, some upon the tire of pontiffs sat like vultures. Others played within the crown which girt with empire a baby's or an idiot's brow and made their nests in it. So these shadows are everywhere, like vampires, like, like terrors, everywhere, living in people's hair, in their capes, whatever people are doing, these shadows are there. And here you could think of Richard II, as Shelley's probably thinking of Shakespeare's Richard II, that within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, says Richard. And there the antic sits, allowing him a little scene to monarchize and kill with looks. But at the end with a little pinprick burrows through his castle walls and goodbye, king. So those shadows are the shadows of truth or of death or of inevitable horror everywhere within this valley. And so some are in playing within the crown which girt with empire, a baby's or an idiot's brow, and made their nests in it. The old anatomies, that is, the old skeletons, sat hatching their bare brood under the shade of demon wings. Just think of that image. Think of that great phrase, their bare brood. So the skeletons are hatching their brood, and their brood is bare because the, the brood of skeletons are skeletons. The old anatomies sat hatching their bare brood under the shade of demon wings. Think of a, you know, of a, of a Hieronymus Bosch painting here. Um, that's what we're getting. Um, and laughed from their dead eyes to reassume the delegated power arrayed in which <coughs> these worms did monarchize who make the this earth, they're charnel. So um, they laughed in order simply to take over 
from the living. Um, the living are who? Those who think they're running the world. Well, what they are are worms arrayed in power delegated to them by skeletons and by death. That's what all living powers are. And what do they do? They make the earth their charnel. They destroy the earth. They make the earth into a charnel house. Others more humble, other of the shadows more humble, like falcons sat upon the fist of common men and round their heads did soar, or like small gnats and flies as thick as mist on evening marshes, thronged above the brow of lawyer, statesman, priest, and theorist, and others like discolored flakes of snow on fairest bosoms, and the sunniest hair fell and were mel melted by the youthful glow which they extinguished. So there are other shadows that were like flakes of snow falling on the faces, the bodies of youth, and they're melted like snowflakes by the glow which they also extinguish, the glow of youth. For like tears, they were a veil. There's that word veil again. For like tears, they were a veil to those from whose faint lips, lids they rained in drops of sorrow. So some of these shadows are drops of sorrow, weeping of all the people on earth. I became aware of whence those forms proceeded, which thus stained the track in which we moved. So now he realizes where the shadows came from. I became aware of whence those forms proceeded, which thus stained the track in which we moved. After brief space, from every form, the beauty solely waned. From every firm, firmest limb and fairest face, the strength and freshness fell like dust and left the action and the shape without the grace of life. So everyone you looked at, you saw their youth drop away, leaving only the shape and action. There's that word shape again, but not the grace of life. That's not capital L life, but small l. That is life as in youth, life as in hope. The marble brow of youth was cleft with care. And in the eyes where once hope shone, desire, like a lioness bereft of its last cub, glared ere it died. Each one of that great crowd sent forth incessantly these shadows. So every instant, every moment of time, the shadow of youth falls away from you and flies around in the world and haunts and vamps you and all other living beings. Each one of that great crowd sent forth incessantly these shadows, numerous as the dead leaves blown in autumn evening from a poplar tree. Each like himself and like each other were at first, but soon distorted, seemed to be obscure clouds molded by the casual air. And of this stuff, the car's creative ray wrought all the busy phantoms that were there. 
as the sun shapes the clouds. So all these shadows fell, and then the light coming from the chariot turned them into these vampires and skeletons. Thus, on the way, mask after mask fell from the countenance and form of all. So that's Shelley's version of masks falling from all those you see. Mask after mask fell from the countenance and form of all. And long before the day was old, the joy which waked like heaven's glance, the sleepers in the oblivious valley died. So it's still morning, but all the joy has died. And some grew weary of the ghastly dance and fell as I have fallen by the wayside, those soonest from whose forms most shadows passed and least of strength and beauty did abide. Then what is life, I said. So he's trying another version of that question. And this is the question. Then what is life, I said. The cripple cast his eye upon the car, which now had rolled onward, as if that look must be the last, and answered, Happy those for whom the fold of... Now that's where Shelley drowns. So that's the answer to the question, what is life? It's an interrupted poem. So what do you think? Where would it have gone? Happy ending? You like to think so? Yeah. So how, could, how would you do it as a happy ending? I keep thinking someone should try to write the rest of this poem the way they did with uh, Marlowe. Um, Hero and Leander uh, is finished by another poet. There are a lot of poems that, are, that were left um, unfinished by poets whom other poets then come to finish. So how would you imagine Danny Campley? But you still like to think so. Yeah, because yeah. it's just the whole thing is so random. Yeah. You just really don't know where it's going. Yeah. But. It's amazingly grim. It's also just amazing. I mean, you know, it's hard to see on a first or second reading. But um, I hope you just found its unbelievable energy and, and beauty and the power of its imagery. the way it itself is always driving onward. Um, just an amazing piece of work. Um, you know, as I said at the end of class last time, I think it's um, not implausible to say that it's the greatest English poem. Um, I think most people wouldn't agree, but it's not, it's not a ridiculous thing to say. Um, it was really important, if you guys know the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. Um, Eliot hated Shelley. Eliot um, basically hated the whole Romantic movement um, and hated Milton as well. Um, but he did say that The Triumph of Life was amazing. That was the one Shelley poem um, that he thought was something really great. And it becomes um, the source of, um, of the description of the air raid in um, the Four Quartets, the little getting section of the Four Quartets, um, 
where Elliot does a kind of quasi-Terzarima description of um, an air raid in London during the war. Um, and it seems to be the case that there's a ghost walking with um, the speaker and his companion, and that ghost seems to be the ghost of Shelley. Um, the ghost describes how, or, or someone addresses the ghost and says, although you left your body on a foreign shore, um, which is what Shelley did after he drowned. Um, so it's, it's a poem that if people know it, it really haunts them. Um, and um, worth being haunted by. Um, okay, we have a few minutes left, so let's look at the lines written in the Bay of Lerici, um, which, as I say, is written about halfway through his writing in The Triumph of Life. So what we have, The Triumph of Life was, he wrote in about five or six weeks um, and then died. What we have was written over the course of five or six weeks. Um, about halfway through, he sat down and wrote the lines written in the Bay of Lerici. Um, and it seems to be thematically connected, although the tone and feel of the poem is very, very different. Um, Shelley, you should look at a poem which I believe, I don't know if it's in your book, but it's called Music When Soft Voices Die. Can someone check the index of first lines? Um, is it in there? It's in this one. Okay, can you read it? It's a lot like Kublai Khan. That one? How did, does it begin music when soft voices die? Music when soft voices die vibrates in the memory. Odors when sweet violets sicken live within the sense they quicken. Rose leaves when the rose is dead are heaped for the beloved's bed. And so thy thoughts when thou art gone, love itself shall slumber on. So you have to know the, you have to know the grammar. It takes a, a second to figure out the grammar, but the idea is Music still vibrates in the memory even when the voices that have been singing it have died, when, when the voices die away. Um, the song is gone, but the, but the memory lingers on. So music, when soft voices die, vibrates in the memory. It's still there um, as an after image. Um, roses or violets, what is it? Um, vi um, ro no, rose leaves when the rose is dead. dead. No, no, but before that, violets when odors when sweet violets thicken uh, live within the within the sense they quicken. So even if the violets die, their odors are still. We have a memory of their odors, um, in the sense that they quicken in in our sense of smell. Roses when the rose is dead, the rose is dead, but the rose leaves are still there and they're heaped for the beloved's bed. So three images of of things with after effects that linger on. And then the grammar of the last sentence, so thy thoughts when thou art gone. That is, so thoughts of you when you're gone. Love itself shall slumber on. Love will slumber on thoughts of you like a bed. So thy thoughts when thou art gone, love itself shall slumber on. Your thoughts will still be thoughts of you will still be there, so that sense in his late lyrics of which that's one, Shelley has this sense of after images and after effects lingering, 
And the greatest version of that is the lines written in the Bay of Lerici. So he, addre- he begins by addressing the moon. We have time. He begins by addressing the moon. Bright wanderer, fair cockat of heaven, to whom alone it has been given to change and be adored forever. Envy not this dim world, for never but once within its shadow grew one fair as thou, but far more true. So don't envy this world. There's only one woman who compares with you, and in fact is truer than you, um, because the moon is a coquette, always changing. But then what happened? She left me, this one woman. She left me at the silent time when the moon had ceased to climb the azure dome of heaven's steep. So the moon reaches its height, and that's when she left. She left me at the silent time when the moon had ceased to climb the azure dome of heaven's steep, and like an albatross asleep balanced on her wings of light, hovered in the purple night, ere she saw her ocean nest in the chambers of the west. So what you should know about albatrosses is that they sleep flying, they hover, um, and they just sleep in the wind. Albatrosses will sometimes go as long as five years without landing on land. Um, They land on water, but not on land. Um, So she left at the time when the moon is like a sleeping albatross hovering in the purple night. Ere she, the moon, sought her ocean nest in the chambers of the west, she left me. And I stayed alone, thinking over every tone, which though now silent to the ear, the enchanted heart could hear. So that's music when soft voices die. Like notes which die when born, but still haunt the echoes of the hill, and feeling ever, oh, too much, the soft vibrations of her touch. So he still feels her touch, even though she's left him. She's gone. She was with him, and then the moon rose, and then she had to go. And feeling ever, oh, too much, the soft vibrations of her touch, as if her gentle hand even now lightly trembled on my brow. And thus, although she absent were, memory gave me all of her that even fancy dares to claim. She was completely filled by memory. Even everything I could fantasize, she was there as memory. Her presence had made weak and tame all passion, and I lived alone in the time which is our own. The past and future were for God as they had been and would be not. But soon the guardian angel gone, that is, she's gone, the demon reassumed his throne in my faint heart. So, so she was there, and it was just great for a few minutes, but then she was gone, and the demon came to his faint heart. I dare not speak my thoughts. So there are those unspoken thoughts again. But thus disturbed and weak I sat and watched the vessels glide along the ocean, bright and wide, like spirit-winged chariots sent or some serenest element to ministrations strange and far. As if to some Elysian star, they sailed for drink to medicine such sweet and bitter pain as mine. So he's just there looking at the landscape, at the ships in the water, as though they were going to some star to get medicine, some drink in order to medicine, the sweet and bitter pain he's feeling. And the wind that changed their flight from the land came fresh and light, and the scent of sleeping flowers and the coolness of the hours of dew, and the sweet warmth of day was scattered o'er the twinkling bay. Again, it's just that sense of the residue of all this beauty. 
And then this great image, which is how fishermen fished at the time, and how they still do in Japan, actually. We've seen them do this. Fish will come to light. And in Japan, um, what we actually saw is um, the fishermen in Kyoto take paper lanterns at night, and they light them and float them on the water. And the fish come to the burning paper lanterns that are floating on the water. Um, and then um, they're actually caught by um, cormorants, that is, birds that will grab fish in their beaks, but the cormorants um, have a rope around their throats so they can't swallow them. So they grab the fish, and then the fishermen take the fish out of the beaks of the cormorants. So that's called cormorant fishing. And there are lots of, you can see lots of Japanese prints of that. It's very, very beautiful. But the fish see the light and worship the delusive flame, as Shelley says. And the fisher with his lamp, he's seeing this, and spear about the low rocks damp crept and struck the fish who came to worship the delusive flame that the fisherman with his lamp is holding over the water. And he says, that's great the way the fish died. Too happy they whose pleasure sought extinguishes all sense and thought of the regret that pleasure leaves. So they had the pleasure, and then they, they went for the light and were killed as they were seeking their pleasure, destroying life alone, not peace. So unlike him, the light is gone for him. For the fishermen, they were too happy. The fish were too happy because they went for the light and died reaching out to it. Whereas for him, the light is gone. Um, okay, it's, we haven't talked much about the beauty of Shelley's late poetry, but these things have moments of exquisite beauty. I will send you a um, notice about where we're having our optional meeting Thursday, where we will, in which we will do Keats's Odes. And then there's a little exam or something on Friday. Do people remember what time Friday it is? Oh, how nice. All right. So see you Thursday and or Friday.